Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Shock as Croydon blocks sale of brick by brick to Urban Splash. Fees hiked at Hampstead Ponds, casting shadows over London's swimming culture. David Chipperfield submits plans for new Chinese embassy in Tower Hamlets. A new building safety bill promises leaseholders rights to sue developers. And why architecture needs more and better public speakers. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Catherine Slesser. Cathy is president of the 20th Century Society. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Merlin. Very pleased to be back. Our first story this week was covered in the AJ and is all to do with a looming move by Croydon Council to reject an offer from Urban Splash to buy its house building business brick by brick. The surprise turn of events follows a report published ahead of Croydon's cabinet meeting later this month recommending the deal is not taken forward and instead advising that the ambitious design-led company should be wound down. The proposed rejection of the offer, believed to be worth up to £100 million, comes despite a council-backed investigation by consultant Savills which found that the principles of the Urban Splash bid were, quote, not unreasonable. The sale would have seen all of Brick by Brick's existing assets, including the award-winning common ground architecture practice and its impressive development pipeline, snapped up by the Manchester-based developer. The sale would have marked Urban Splash's first major foray into the London development market. Instead, the financially bankrupt local council will appoint a contractor to manage a modified build-out of 23 of Brick by Brick's remaining sites, while also selling off six others. Meanwhile, Brick by Brick would be slowly wound down as a business until the completion of the final developments in 2023. The scrutiny report for the council concluded that the build-out option would carry higher levels of risk for the council than a potential sale. However, the authority would only face loan write-offs of between £26.6 million and £52.7 million, compared to a significantly higher predicted £54 to £68.4 million write-off predicted with a sale to Urban Splash. 
Council leader Hamida Ali told the AJ that Croydon's priorities over the future of Brick by Brick have always been to, quote, secure the best possible returns on investments on behalf of taxpayers and provide much needed genuinely affordable homes. Under the extended wind-down plans, brick-by-brick homes already under construction would be set to be completed. However, 70 early-stage projects by some of London's most exciting design talents, including Denizen Works, Gort Scott, Mary Duggan Architects, May and Archeo, would be scrapped or the sites sold on. A report by accountancy firm Grant Thornton revealed that more than £200 million had been lent to Brick by Brick, but that no dividend nor interest payment had ever been made. So, Cathy, what's this all about? Only a few weeks ago, we were reporting on how this sale was in its final stages of negotiations. Who are Brick by Brick and why was its creation such a bold move after decades of councils and government outsourcing of housing delivery to the private sector? What do you think of this shock U-turn which set to force Brick by Brick and its in-house architecture practice common ground to dissolve? Well, Merlin, um, this is all about money, as most things tend to be these days. Um, But it's also about a rather disappointing withering of vision and clenching of sphincters in the face of spreadsheets. Um, essentially, Brick by Brick was a property developer, part owned by Croydon Council, with the aim of building affordable homes in the borough of Croydon. So unlike more conventional private property developers who might be involved with different sorts of building types in different locales, Brick by Brick's aim was to do things differently, providing well-designed affordable homes for local people, adding value to existing neighbourhoods. So they would take on small sites with smaller projects and engage interesting younger architects to create affordable apartment blocks and houses for local people. Some ways, they were a bit like an old-fashioned municipal architecture department recast for the 21st century. So that had some success, both as a model of housing procurement and provision, and also in getting architects to think about residential design getting the most out of small sites and modest programmes. So all this knowledge sort of builds up and accumulates and is very useful going forward. Um, And it also tackles an affordable housing deficit, which is an omnipresent fact of life in London these days. But uh, last November, Croydon Council effectively declared itself bankrupt, admitting it wasn't able to fill a £66 million hole in its finances. So this prompted intense scrutiny of the local authorities' spending, including its house builder, Brick by Brick. So the idea of selling off Brick by Brick to a developer, such as Urban Splash, who have huge experience and success of developing sites in Manchester and Liverpool, was quite appealing. The council would no longer be financially responsible um, for the success or failure of Brick by Brick, and... There might have been ways to allow it to continue its house building work, maybe even beyond Croydon. But as you explained in your introduction, the loan write-offs from the sale of brick by brick to Urban Splash, as opposed to winding it down, which is what they're going to do, would be significantly higher for the council. And as they are now under financial pressure as a public body facing public scrutiny, this decision has sadly in a way been made for them. And just just quickly, what what do you think if it had gone to Urban Splash, would that have been quite nice for London? I think it would have been very interesting for London because, as I said, Urban Splash have a track record of 
developing sites, hiring good architects. Um, they're a creative developer, if such a thing is possible. And I think that would have been interesting. They, but they've not done anything in London before. They, you know, they work in the northwest, Manchester, Liverpool. Um, so I think it would have been interesting to see what they could have managed to do in London. Under this proposed winding down, six brick by brick schemes will be sold altogether. And that amounts to about 156 homes lost to the council. Uh, while a further 20 projects representing more than 790 homes will be scrapped. Local homelessness charity Croydon Nightwatch has reported a 50% increase in demand as a result of the pandemic. Uh, with the deepening housing crisis, where does this latest surprise move leave Croydon when it comes to meeting local housing needs? Well, obviously, in terms of quantity, um, losing nearly a thousand homes that might have been occupied by people whose need is greatest and whose agency is the least powerful whether that means homeless families or those on modest incomes, uh, that's all quite disastrous. But in a way, it's, again, that's become a depressing normality in London. And you might have thought that since many people's situations have become even more precarious because of the pandemic, there would have been an increased commitment to affordable housing rather than a retreat from it. So I don't know what it portends for Croydon, apart from a deepening housing crisis misery, uh, but there's also a loss in terms of quality in the hiring of thoughtful architects such as Mary Duggan, Scott, Phil Coffey and May, uh, who are trying to break the mould of lowest common denominator thinking around space standards, layouts, materials, landscaping and sustainability. Um, they were trying to do more with less, trying to raise the bar. And all this expertise, enthusiasm and a sense of a genuinely public programme will now be lost and other councils thinking of perhaps trying this arm's length developer model might now think twice about it. Absolutely. And I think just picking up on what you were saying about that expertise in the space standards and so on, I mean, you know, just recently, the House of Lords Built Environment Committee has launched a new inquiry into housing demand, and they're going to focus on things like the type, tenure and quality of housing needed in the UK. So you know, with, with more and more cross-party political pressure growing around the country's worsening deficit of new homes, is it concerning that the knowledge and expertise embedded in a council-owned organisation like Brick by Brick isn't as well understood as it really should be at a crucial moment like this? Yes, absolutely. Um, and as I said, all that knowledge will be lost when it goes. Um, but the wider truth is that, unfortunately, the Tory government still doesn't care about public or affordable housing. And I know I'm going to sound like a crack record, but the sector was systematically dismantled by Mrs Thatcher in the late 70s with right to buy and the abolition of lifetime tenure. And we're still living with the fallout today. Housing has become a commodity, especially in London. Look at the silos of Vauxhall, for example, filled with flats kept empty so uh, overseas buyers can cash in at a later date. And there's obviously a wider sense that people on lower incomes aren't necessarily going to be Tory voters, so you don't have to keep them sweet. So it's a huge political and social entanglement, which is only going to get worse post-pandemic. And in this, architects are doing the usual hired gun bit. They can't necessarily change things. But Brick by Brick was a genuinely interesting programme, and it is deeply regrettable and concerning that it will now be lost. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. 
We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month. And Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our next story was covered in The Guardian. It's all about the new fees introduced at Hampstead Heath Swimming Ponds. The open-air swimming areas known as Kenwood Ladies Pond, Highgate Men's Pond and Hampstead Mix Pond have traditionally been free to use with the option of voluntary donations and were famous for drawing a mixed and varied crowd of visitors. However, the City of London Corporation, which manages the ponds, introduced a compulsory fee in the early 2000s. A subsequent survey revealed that this massively impacted access to the ponds. 58 percent of 600 respondents claimed the fees were too expensive, resulting in more than half of them swimming less frequently, and a quarter of them no longer being able to swim at all. This year, the City of London hiked the prices yet again, more than doubling the pond's general admission fee from £2 to £4.05. One swimmer, speaking to The Guardian, said, quote, The whole nature, the beauty of the place has been destroyed. It's not an escape anymore. Now you feel like you're being watched. People checking you've paid, your membership, that you're wearing your wristband. It's restrictive rather than the freedom we used to have. That was their quote. So, Kath, you're a keen swimmer. Could you paint a picture of Hampstead Ponds for our listeners? Perhaps also explaining for those who haven't been there why, say, for example, the ladies' pond in particular is so special and what you make of these spiralling charges. Well, as you mentioned, there are three ponds at Hampstead, the men's and mixed ponds, which are both publicly visible as you're walking around the heath. Um, but the Kenwood Pond, which is for women, is by far the most bucolic and secluded. It's cupped in a wooden glade and... In summer, it's an extremely magical place um, to swim. I, expect, I confess that during the first lockdown last year, uh, I scaled a very modest fence with an accomplice at 6.30 in the morning to have an illegal swim. We were the only people in the pond, and it was probably my best swim of 2020. Uh, otherwise, in the winter, it tends to be full of lady novelists who keep the Guardian supplied with interminable wild swimming memoirs. And it's also got a sunbathing bank where you can disport naked, so it's all delightfully sybaritic. And it's this idea of being able to commune with nature freely, and literally freely, you know, before the charges came in, uh, and anyone could do it. But now, of course, charges, four quid is quite a bit, you know, if you go a couple of times a week, it all adds up. And the, po- the ponds are, and the heath, is managed by the City of London Corporation, who, uh, last time I checked on Wikipedia, have reserves of £2.3 billion. So I don't think they need um, necessarily need the money. Um, and the idea of a public amenity, which you know anyone can use, um, is just delightful. Um, and I think charging, just again, it sets up a, you know, it, it provides a barrier to access. And the more people that are able to sort of take advantage of fantastic places like the Kent, like the Hampstead Pond, uh, ponds, um, you know, really should be encouraged. So now more than ever, we know of the benefits of access to nature and exercise to both our mental and physical health. And as we're emerging from a third lockdown, the City of London has now placed what some see as a financial barrier, limiting their access to both green space and swimming. Not only this, but elsewhere, we're seeing public swimming pools throughout the capital 
closing their doors for good. For example, University of London's Union Pool, uh, which incidentally was home to the last nudist swimming club in London. Uh, Kath, if you were put in charge of reinventing swimming in the city, uh, what would your manifesto for London swimming look like? And uh, what would you change and what would you implement? Um, Well, it would be a three-point manifesto based around nudity, freedom and lidos. Um, You mentioned the Nudist Swimming Club, of which I was an enthusiastic member. And really, if you've not done it, and I do recommend it, swimming in the scud is really the best fun you can have with your clothes off. So I would follow the example of Finland's oldest pool in Hel- indoor pool in Helsinki, whose name escapes me. But it dates from 1927 and has separate men's and women's sessions and in which costumes are strictly optional. It also has a balcony around the pool at upper level where you can recover from your nude swim with a gin and tonic. So here, unfortunately, there's still a huge undertow of Victorian prudery around bodies and water. So if I was swimming, Tsar, and I predict it will only be a matter of time before I will be, um, more nudity, more subsidised swimming sessions to get more people in the water, because being able to swim is a life skill, a critical life skill, as well as a huge pleasure. And I would also commission a string of floating lidos to be built along the Thames, which would be free to use during summer. I worked out that the cost of the garden bridge, which was billed at £185 million, you could build 16 floating lidos at £11 million each, which is by far much better value for money. And um, I'm just thinking, because sometimes I, I scroll through Twitter and there's all kinds of stuff on there, but what's always a ray of sunshine is seeing the things that you're tweeting. And often as the president of the 20th Century Society, you're tweeting about amazing buildings which should obviously be saved from demolition and just other things we need to appreciate more. But one of the things you also share a lot of is um, insights into swimming and cool places uh, that you go swimming. What, what out of all of these, what would be your favourite place to go for a swim in London? Well, I'm a mild swimmer, not a wild swimmer. Uh, I prefer chlorine and warmth and buildings rather than, you know, freezing lidos. Um, so I enjoy Kentishtown Bass, which is a very proper old Victorian pool up in Kentishtown. Uh, the pool on the Golden Lane Estate, which is Chamberlain Powell and Bon, which is modern little glass box. Lovely, lovely pool. Um, but my absolute favourite has to be the Oasis in Holborn which is a great but slightly grungy outdoor pool, which is heated and attracts all sorts. So it might just look like a hole in the ground, but it was originally built on the site of a Turkish bath, and the whole thing was going to be developed into a proper streamlined 1930s pool in the mid-30s. But the war intervened, and that never happened. So it remained a hole in the ground, visible from the street until the 1960s, uh, when they built an office block and council housing around it. So now it's a kind of secret spot in the heart of London that for the initiated only. Um, And on a sunny day, you really can't beat it. Our next story appeared in the AJ and The Guardian this week. It's all to do with David Chipperfield Architects submitting plans to convert the Royal Mint in Tower Hamlets into a new complex for the Chinese embassy. The 2.3 hectare scheme focuses on keeping the Grade 2 listed neoclassical Johnson Smirk designed building as the complex's 
focal point. It also proposes embassy accommodation, offices and a cultural centre. The relocation of the embassy from Portland Place to the prominent site next to the Tower of London has sparked some controversy from local politicians, including members of Tower Hamlet's council, who in March voted in favour of a motion to consider renaming streets around the new complex in solidarity with Tibetan and Uyghur Muslim people. According to the submitted plans, the scheme's design aims to shift the idea of embassies as heavily defended symbols of power and instead create a community of buildings, each with distinctly different atmospheres and characteristics. The plans also place a strong emphasis on the retention and reuse of existing architecture, including the Grade 2 listed Johnson Smirk building and the Siemens Register, which was remodelled by RMJM in the late 1980s. Uh, both of these buildings are due to be restored. The new Embassy House will be created by dividing up and stripping back a 1980s Shepherd Robson designed office block and an adjacent Dexter House building, which will contain 225 flats for Embassy staff. Meanwhile, while the Murray House part of the complex will be repurposed into a new seven-storey cultural exchange building clad in green ceramic. A spokesperson for David Chipperfield said, Following shared sustainability and heritage ambitions, we propose reusing the existing buildings through a combination of careful intervention and minimal demolition to ensure the protection of the valuable historic elements on the site and its sensitive surroundings. So, Cathy, why is this such a big deal? What sort of position does David Chipperfield and his practice hold in the world of contemporary architecture? And what might we expect to see based on the plans they have submitted? Uh, of these include a cultural centre as well as office space and accommodation. Um, what do you think about this more integrated approach to embassy building? Well, Chipperfield has become a very heavy hitter in terms of high-profile clients and projects. He made his name in Germany with a series of museum remodellings, and he's just finished fiddling about with the Mies van der Rohe's Neue National Gallery in Berlin. Um, he used to get no projects in the UK and be very cheesed off by this. Um, but now he has become the go-to guy for business, culture, and now this refashioned embassy for the Chinese. Um, as architects will probably know, the previous Chinese embassy was on Portland Place, directly opposite the RBA, and architecturally fairly undistinguished, just a converted Georgian townhouse. Uh, with this move, I imagine it will give the Chinese delegation more space and be a more open kind of building with an element of cultural outreach as part of soft power diplomacy. But the architecture is quite toned down from looking at the renderings, um, as tends to be the case with Chipperfield. He specialises in a kind of stealth looks, and this looks like it will be another example of tasteful stealth looks. It's interesting to compare it with the more architecturally hectic new US embassy at Vauxhall, which makes more of an overt statement. Um, but that was conceived as terraforming a new piece of city. Here it's remaking and expanding an array of ex existing historic buildings. Fantastic. Um, and now, look, these, these plans, they have a real heavy emphasis on retrofitting the existing buildings on the site. And um, obviously, the environmental impact of the construction industry is really in the zeitgeist and in the focus of our attention more and more right now. Um, you know, but often, large-scale developments, as far as they're concerned, we haven't really seen retrofit being taken on fully as you know, the, the central way of approaching major architectural projects. Um, what sort of message does such a large and prestigious like this one go Going so strongly down the retrofit route, send to other architects and built environment decision makers here and also around the world? Um, that's an interesting question, and I think part of the answer 
lies in the fact that it again comes down to money. Um, at present in the UK, retrofitting or refurbishment projects attract VAT at 20%, whereas new build does not. So it's much cheaper for a client to knock down existing buildings and build from scratch. Obviously, in environmental terms, that's crazy because it effectively represents an incentive to rebuild rather than renovate. And despite the obvious social, economic and environmental benefits of repair and maintenance. But there is pressure for this to change. The Architects Journal have long been advocating their Retro First campaign, uh, which is gathering traction. They estimate that we lose something like 50,000 buildings to demolition every year in the UK. And I think as the scale of the environmental crisis becomes more overwhelming in 20 or even 10 years' time, it will be the more the norm to retrofit rather than build new. So projects like the Chinese Embassy can send out a positive message in this respect, but it needs a more fundamental shift in political and economic policy. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So it's almost like until they sort that policy, it's only mega, mega rich prestige clients that are going to be making big points like this. Yes. And also, I mean, the buildings on the Royal Mint site would have been listed. So they would have had to make, uh, you know, they would have had to make a story, you know, a, uh, an architectural justification for the removal. So sometimes you are stuck with buildings which have got historic significance and you have to sort of make the most of them. Uh, it's just like one of the things, um, when these plans went in, it just perhaps coincidentally uh, coincided with the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, which was celebrated in Beijing with like big parades and speeches and so on and so forth. And one of the things, it's interesting because like big star architects like David Chipperfield often find themselves working with wealthy and powerful clients. But it also just so happens in the world that we live in that clients with a lot of money and power are often also criticised for not only how they got that money, but also how they wield that power. Is it possible to separate design work and the ethics of the people paying for them, or are the two always entwined and therefore inseparable? If you're looking back at historical precedent, um, architects working for unsavoury clients or cozying up to dubious regimes is nothing new. It's it's a fact of life, and I think you have to be aware of it when you're reevaluating these buildings in the context of of history. Um, there will always be someone willing to sup with the devil. But personally, I think if you have doubts about the ethics of who is commissioning you, then you shouldn't take the job, because if everyone did that, then it might help to change things. Um, but as I've said before, architects are hired guns. Many are greedy, ambitious, and have big offices to serve. Uh, so, of course, they'll turn a blind eye, and their argument would be, if we don't do it, then somebody else will. Our fourth story this week was again covered by the AJ, The Guardian and on London. It's all to do with the long-promised building safety bill, which has finally been introduced by the government, almost four years after the Grenfell disaster. Um, the bill, which is still to pass through the House of Commons and House of Lords before it is cemented into law, will establish a new building safety regulator to oversee a much stricter safety regime for high-rise homes. Under this two-tier regulatory system, construction of high-risk buildings will require principal designers and principal contractors who will be specifically responsible for safety, as well as gateway points where safety risk is considered. Residents in high-rises will also be equipped with more ways of raising concerns about safety, while property developers who fail to meet requirements could have their properties taken off the market. The, the ARB, uh, which regulates architects, uh, will also have more power to remove people from the architect's register if they have not undertaken sufficient CPD, that's career professional development, or competence tests. 
The new legislation has, however, already faced criticism uh, for failing to protect leaseholders from the cost of fixing buildings that have failed safety checks in the wake of Grenfell. Uh, for example, it only requires building owners to show they have explored alternative ways of meeting remediation costs before then passing those very same costs on to the leaseholders. So, Kath, what's this all about? We've been waiting for this legislation to come through since the Grenfell tragedy happened four years ago. And even at that point, to be honest, it's clear safety measures like this were far overdue. Um, how have we ended up in this mess? Uh, is the legislation set out in this bill enough? Or is it still betraying the residents of those high-rise buildings to the all-powerful developers? And also, what does this mean for architects who are seemingly caught in the middle of it all? Well, I think in the fallout about cladding and leaseholders and architects and government intransigence, we should remember that four years ago, 72 people lost their lives in a horrific but entirely preventable fire that burnt for 24 hours. Um, and the subsequent buck passing amongst construction professionals, developers and politicians has really been nothing short of scandalous. Essentially, the Conservative government has not wanted to upset its core constituency of landlords and property developers by um, dumping most of the cost of replacing potentially harmful cladding on blameless leaseholders who are now stuck in unsellable flats with huge bills. So this latest legislation, which has taken you know, four years to evolve, um, is a sop to give some sense of agency. Um, but who is going to be able to prove that a property developer has failed to meet safety requirements. How is that going to work in practice? It's just going to be more work for um, committees, um, bureaucracy. Um, you know, you can imagine a whole sort of new sort of genre of safety engineers springing up to service this sector. Um, I mean, really, you know, the government should have helped to bail out leaseholders, should have taken a kind of responsibility uh, and just made, the, made the, the funds available to rectify this spiralling disaster, which has unfolded with, you know, complete horror. What's interesting is that um, prior to the bill's official release on Monday, London Assembly members last week called on Sadiq Khan to boycott developers and housing associations that have failed to protect those very leaseholders. Um, they say that with an affordable housing budget of over £4 billion, the mayor could send a clear message to developers by refusing to work with those who forsake action on fire safety. Um, why is it that so many people are losing faith in developers' ability to deliver safe housing? And what could this mean for the future of new homes delivery in a place like London? Well, I think a boycott seems a perfectly reasonable strategy, whether it will be carried out or not. I probably doubt it. But it would send out a powerful signal. And it's certainly clear that in the case of Grenfell, um, the imperative to cut costs, I mean, not that, I mean, the cost cutting wasn't actually that much in practice, but that cost lives. Um, and now I think people are all deeply unnerved about fire safety. There was that recent fire in Docklands. We need, I think, you know, we need more creative developers. We need better regulation. And, and I think for once I agree with Alan Jones, which was um, that the profession has become marginalised and architects aren't in control of the overall construction process. And yes, it is depressing because, you know, the developers built the built houses which conform to safety regulations of the time, so they're not directly responsible if, you know, the regulations say that buildings must be constructed in a particular way. But the sort of the lack of, you know, seeing this as a, a sea change, um, everyone retreating into their own kind of professional enclaves and passing the buck, um, has been very unedifying. 
Our final story is the news that a new public speaking training course has been launched, specifically tailored towards architects and city makers. The course, which has been created by Open City, aims to equip participants from sectors such as architecture, planning, engineering and design with skills in connecting with audiences, building more self-confidence and telling more engaging stories about their work. It promises to engage coaches with experience in acting, tour guiding, lecturing, direction and persuasive conversation technique, supporting attendees to see public speaking in a new light, whether on stage, over Zoom, on camera, in client meetings or in design reviews. Phineas Harper, who's helped create this course, said, quote, Great public speaking isn't about talking loudly or using long words. It's about how you connect with an audience on an emotional level. Too often, watching an architecture lecture or design review presentation leaves you cold. There are so many architects and other built environment professionals in London, particularly mid-career practitioners, who could be extraordinary communicators with the right training and some practice. So, Kath, why do architects and other city-making professionals have a reputation for being bad communicators are they really deserving of this title do you think well i think to some extent they are and i think it all starts at college when um the crit system so they learn to talk about their work but it inculcates a slightly defensive because they're having to defend their decisions um so this kind of filters through into um into their professional lives some people are quite good at it some people um, are very bad at it Yes, I mean, I've sat through some terrible... When people are talking about their work, I've sat through some very you know, boring lectures. Why is it that you think it's so important for architects to improve their skills in public speaking? I mean, it seems like such a big part of the job, frankly. It's, it's developing kind of language of architectural communication. You know, ordinary people don't generally have a language in which to discuss architecture. I mean, architects talking amongst themselves it is like a kind of foreign language. The lack of architectural criticism in newspapers... You know, there's people don't have a framework in which to discuss it. You know, there's a sort of I know what I like, but I can't right, I can't articulate why I like it. So I think architects being able to, to talk more effectively and communicate more effectively about their work would be helpful generally. Is there anyone you think you could nominate to go on a course like this? Uh, if it could be anyone, who would it be? <laughs> oh dear. Well, I can't really name names, but someone who's maybe designed the Chinese embassy in. The... <coughs> <laughs> There's quite a lot of old, stale, pale ma- white males who might benefit from being, you know, able to sort of fire juggle, for example. Cathy, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The Lundown again. You're a friend of the show. Uh, where can our listeners uh, find out more about the amazing things you're writing? How can they follow all, the, all your activities? Well, I've just assumed the presidency of the 20th Century Society, which is a group concerned with preserving modern architecture. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, you can find me on Twitter and I'm still contributing to the Architectural Review and other fine publications. Well, fantastic. Great to have you on the show again and hope, hope you can join us again soon in the future. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N, 
Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.